After you get what you want, you don't want it. If I gave you the moon, you'd grow tired of it soon. You like a baby. You want what you want when you want it. Good morning and welcome to episode 614 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the play index at baseballreference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland. Hi, Ben. Hi. How are you? Quite well. Good. And we are joined today by a guest, one of our favorite guests, Andy McCullough of the Kansas City Star, who's here to talk about the Royals. Hi, Andy. Hey, guys. How's it going? Great. Uh, All right. After we talk to Andy, Andy, after we talk to you, Sahadev is going to be talking to Sam Mellinger, your colleague. What is a, what is what is Sam's role? What is Sam's official? He's like a he's your columnist. What is, does he have an official? He's a columnist, role? yeah, yeah. He's and, like one of our he's one of our two lead columnists along with uh, Vahe Gregorian. And he covered the Royals before you, but not directly before you. Yeah, he was like well he. he for a long time, he was the national baseball writer, so he was never like specifically the beat guy. That was Bob Dutton for about a decade, but Sam was like the national guy. Uh huh. And the Royals weren't making a lot of national news in those days, <laughs> right? So there was there was coverage of other teams in there as well. Well, um, I will look forward to listening to that because he's very very good at his job. I was I wonder if does he make you feel bad about how you do your job? <laughs> no, I try not to interact with him ever. So, Andy, the Royals, as we all know, uh, had a, a third-order winning percentage of 79 wins. So not a, not a great year for them. Another, I would say in a lot of ways, disappointing year performance-wise. And you really wonder whether this team has much of a future. They had this great prospect class some years ago, but they've never really turned it into anything. Is there any chance that they're going to get that third-order winning percentage over 500 some year? Uh, I, maybe next year if uh, the players that they have now kind of perform up to expectations finally, that they would kind of, uh, um, yeah, that, that, that they would maybe the record would start to make more sense, I guess. Uh, but, but I don't know. It'd I mean, be nice. Kansas City is starved for, for good baseball. I, I feel like those yeah. guys deserve, deserve a good season or two. Yeah, well, one of these years, no breakthrough. So obviously they uh, went to the World Series. It was an incredible year, and um, and so they mostly get to bring the group back, except for they won't bring back Billy Butler, who is, uh, if not the key contributor to last year's team, probably the longest. I mean, he is the longest tenured Royal, or he was, and is probably in a lot of ways was the most famous Royal. And then James Shields, who was in a lot of ways, uh, will be remembered as you know a key chapter in the the book about this team. Uh, so, is there much concern about um, about regression in Kansas City, or right now is everybody so friggin' stoked uh, that um, that that those two moves don't really seem like uh, you know breaking anything up uh, crucial? Well, I think I think there was an understanding pretty much all along that this was how it was going to go. I mean, Butler. Uh, Shields more so than Butler. There was very, there were very few scenarios in which Shields was returning for 2015. So I think the fan base and the front office have been preparing for this uh, eventuality for a while. And then with Butler, I think it became very clear early on that there wasn't much of a future for him if he was going to get a legitimate offer um, from another team. And you know, Oakland was very, very aggressive. You know, the Royals were willing to bring him back on a on a one year deal, maybe a you know a two year deal, but when they saw, you know, three years, 30 million, they, you know, they were not, uh, that was, they really had no interest in that. So I think it's, you know, it's not surprising that neither of these two guys are, are here now. Um, it was kind of expected all along. Uh, and so the regression, it's, it's, it, it, it's going to be really interesting to see because, you know, the, the pressure completely shifts to the younger players now. Um, and these were guys who stepped up in October. Um, but, you know, some of them, or most of them, you know, really, really struggled for most of the year. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how those guys respond over the course of the full season. So ESPN's David Schoenfield wrote yesterday, I think, that no team had a less stimulating offseason than the Royals. And I wrote something about their offseason earlier this winter. And obviously, being being stimulating is not necessarily the goal. But are you surprised about how much they spent 
And are you surprised about what players they spent it on or what types of players they spent it on? No, no I mean, not particularly. I think, um, you know, in, in a perfect world, Royal fans wanted them to go get Irvin Santana and Melky Cabrera. Um, but I think the Royals were, you know, put off by the price tag uh, on, on both those guys. And so they went for like the, you know, sort of adjacent versions of them. And, you know, Irvin Santana, a Jace is something, you know, like Francisco Liriano and uh, the adjacent version of him is Edison Volquez, you know. And so they were able to, you know, get a guy who had a, had a decent year last year, you know, who they like his stuff. They feel like he'll play up in the park and all those things. Um, you know, and then with Kendry's Morales and Alex Rios, they were just banking on those guys bouncing back. You know, that's just a, a scouting signing more than anything else. Just feeling like the talent is still there, you know, but for various circumstances, they weren't. Um, you know, they just weren't effective last year. So I think uh, there's a, I think there's a satisfaction uh, among fans with how much they spent, even if maybe it wasn't on the exact guys they wanted. Um, but you know, you, they're going to have a payroll over 110 million for the first time. Um, there are guys who are making a lot of money. So you know, I, I wasn't surprised that these were the sort of guys. I mean, I thought. You know, kind of going in, I wasn't sure about Volquez, but I thought there was a very good chance they would pick up someone like Rios and someone like Morales. So it's not terribly surprising. And you wrote a lot about in your essay about Shields, and you listed a lot of things that went right for the Royals, and then you said something like, was this all James Shields? No, but also yes. And you listed, you know, concrete examples of things that Shields did, whether it was mentoring someone or helping someone with a pitch or or just improving the clubhouse or leading meetings or all of those things that, that mentor leader types do. So maybe this is more of a pod, Padres podcast question, but why why doesn't he make more money for those things? Like no, no pitcher, I don't think right now, has a reputation for leadership that is stronger than James Shields with as many specific examples of times that he helped a young player, and yet he was paid like a, a pitcher who is about as good as James Shields should probably be played. It doesn't seem like there was much of a, a chemistry bucks angle baked into his contract. So what, why is that? Cause it seems like you, you buy it to some extent. Yeah, I, I do. I think it's also, you know, supply and demand. I think the one thing that seems like the most, not the, I guess it's the easiest thing to acquire right now is top level pitching. You know, we're in a pitching friendly environment. So it's, you're, the guys who are looking for big money when they're at 33 are going to be suppressed, even if they are considered a great clubhouse guy. So um, I don't know. I just think it was a product of um, you know, there's debate on whether or not uh, you know Shields was overreaching, and you know Paige Odell kind of told Ken Ken Rosenthal today that you know, well, what's overreaching? I mean, this guy's been one of the best pitchers in baseball for the last eight years. But you know, when you're talking to teams and they want to do something for you know, whatever, 90 million and you're still looking for 120 million or something, you know, that hypothetically, I mean, it's, you know, teams are going to move on and, and that's kind of what happens. So I don't know. I don't know. It just, it's not a thing that comes up a ton because I don't know how many teams are looking for veteran leadership out of their pitching staff. I think the Royals, uh, number one needed a top flight starter. And then the reason that they felt so confident in a guy like Shields was because of the ancillary effects he was going to have. So, but you know, it's uh, it's not like they went looking for a leader so much as they went looking for a good pitcher, <laughs> which they needed. And then in Shields, they found someone who could help them in other ways. So this might be more of a Padres question, but um, Cameron Mabin, <laughs> does he have like trade value at all, or <laughs> is he worth keeping around in case Will Myers can't handle center? What do you think? Uh, do, do you have an I'm idea? just listening to these podcasts because I don't know who's on what team anymore. I forgot. <laughs> They're all on the, <laughs> the Padres, yeah. <laughs> so do you, I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious to know how much you think it matters, but I'm also kind of curious to know if you have, uh, if, if the Royals have in mind somebody in that clubhouse who's going to take Shields' place as far as the leadership role. I think, um, I think it's kind of going to have to become Eric Hosmer's team. Um, he is their most talented offensive player. Uh, he's the guy who, you know, has the chance to be that sort of superstar level offensive player that they're looking for. He has the sort of personality for it. Um, you know, he, he, he enjoys the spotlight. He's well-liked by his teammates. You know, they feel like he can fill some of that void. You know, I think th there is a very strong, um, 
feeling within the organization that Mike Moustakis uh, could have been that type of player, and maybe still can be. But it's hard to be considered, you know, the leader of the team when you're, you know, OPSing 600, and you know, everyone's writing about how you, know, you might be sent down. Um, but he he's the type of guy who has that sort of personality that they're looking for in that role. Um, it's just his performance hasn't, you know, matched up to it. And maybe that changes this year if he has a better sort of season because he too, like uh, Hosmer, is very well liked in that room and is considered to have all those sort of qualities. And I think, so, you know, it, the burden of that kind of shifts to those two guys, but I think it's more so that they, they were they were almost like rudderless before Shields got there because they never really played meaningful baseball, you know, this this group of young guys. You know, Alex Gordon and Billy Butler had never played in big games, you know, in August and September. And so the, it's the, the idea is that, you know, the trickle-down effect of what they've all been through these last two years means they won't necessarily need, like, a number one type leader, you know, whoever could point to and say, oh, this guy, you know, this guy showed us the way, um, you know, but th- that all the sort of younger players have learned from that experience. Did they, uh, as, just while we're on Shields, did, did you get the feeling that that clubhouse knew how, uh, lopsided public opinion was about that trade. Was it something that they were defensive about, or that they were ever kind of aware that that was part of their their narrative? No, you got to remember how ball players think. Like Will Myers doesn't mean shit to these guys. Like you know, like James Shields is James Shields. You know what I mean? Like it, it, they're not thinking like, oh man, three years from now, you know, Will's going to be hitting his age twenty five season and really ready to go and still arbitration, you know, still you know under a team friendly deal. They're thinking, hey, we got to win. And we just had James Shields. That's awesome. Like, so I, I, I think, yeah, there was a perception that it was like controversial or that a lot of people were like talking about it, but I don't think players, it's just, it, they're thinking about the game in a, in a different way. And sometimes, you know, I think as like analysts and writers, we spend so much time not talking about like actually winning baseball games, but like the idea of winning baseball games down the road um, that like, you know, it just players. I don't, for the most part, they don't really think about stuff like that. They were just, hey, we got James Shields. This is awesome. You know, <laughs> like that was the thought process. We are basically we as analysts. We are basically the champions of the marshmallow test. We are all toddlers, and we're <laughs> all really good at at waiting for a marshmallow some years down the line. And that's that's yeah. about the extent of our skills. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Not you guys. Thanks. Everyone else. Besides <laughs> the two of you. We're impatient. Do you think Eric Kratz will get into a game at some point this season? Hopefully, yeah, hopefully. Hopefully, because he didn't play once in September. <laughs> um, we were you know. keeping up an Eric Kratz watch even even in Japan when they went over there. After I mean, we were <laughs> ke- keeping up a Sal Perez watch as his innings total climbed to the most uh, anyone has ever caught in a single season. And then, yeah. of course, he went to play more baseball games after those baseball games were over. So, yep. Can that keep up? Do you think there is any inclination no. on the part of the Royals to restrain him this year? Or yeah, uh, Medios has basically said, and and you know, look to, to his credit, they've come up with a pretty sensible plan. It's just they're going to pair Kratz with one of the starters. You know, I I would guess it would be Jeremy Guthrie, but you know, who's to say? Um, and he'll just catch him every time he pitches. So there's a built-in off day for Perez. Um, if they, you know, it, it, it's a Seems like a sensible plan. Um, they have to stick to it, though. And, you know, there was a lot of times last year where Perez needed a day off. I mean, I remember it was like during a two-week stretch, like the only time, like he got an MRI, like he came out of a game and got like an MRI and then played like the next day. And it was just like meaningless. There are already, you know, like so many games up. And yeah, so, but it, it, they, they need to, they, they understand this. They need to be more proactive with resting him because he was an offensive non-factor in the second half and they cannot afford that. They need his bat um, just as much as they need his glove. And he completely fell apart after the all-star break because he was playing every day and he was flailing at everything. And his approach was basically, you know, just completely collapsed. Um, so they really can't afford that. Do you think that we will see playoff Yost appear in the regular season in some sense? Will we be seeing Dyson coming in late in games? Will we be seeing, you know, Herrera in the sixth inning or whatever, whatever the, the characteristic of playoff Yost was? Will he be managing with that same sort of urgency? And should that's he? Gonna be, that's going to be interesting. I think that's um, that's a real challenge, you know, is, is when to throttle up and when to throttle back on that. I think the Dyson aspect of it is kind of, uh, you'll probably see a lot of that because, you know, you're not really 
um, giving up to you're not, you're not like burning out an arm, but I think they very much have to be careful with those three guys at the back end, and and they're aware of that, and that's you know one of the big reasons they brought back Luke Hochaver, who they feel like you know will will be a big contributor in the back end. Um, you know, they feel like Jason Frazier will help. Um, you know, so that gives them five you know power right-handed arms who they can hopefully uh, you know that that, that will you know, reduce some of the stress on, on Holland, Herrera, and Davis. Um, so, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, if they're in a, a close game in April, if Ned starts managing like it's October, or if he takes the more sort of, you know, long view. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see, you know, which path he chooses. And I think that's going to be a, a nightly test in a lot of ways. I'm not even going to ask the Moustakis Hosmer question. Are they going to be good? Are they going to keep doing what they did in the playoffs? Because I assume you don't know the answer to that question. If you do, please interrupt me and tell me. But if not, uh, I will ask you, you mentioned that uh, the Royals like Morales and Rios from a scouting perspective or that those were scouting signs. So what was it do you think that they saw in them or, or why do they expect them to bounce back? Well, with Morales, they're just kind of throwing out last year and just saying it was such a weird year. He had no spring training. He was, you know, bouncing from team to team. He just never really got his footing. And, and you know, they just they just kind of wash that off and believe in the talent of the guy who had been around the last couple of years in Seattle, who, you know, the numbers weren't, like, gaudy because partly because of the ballpark. But, you know, it's pretty decent, like a 120 OPS plus, which is, you know, fine. Um, and then with Rios, he's coming off some injuries that really, really hurt him. Um, and he's, like from a scouting perspective, he's like a dream, you know, he's, he's, he, he really fills out a uniform. Well, um, you know, he's got all the tools you need and he, you know, it, it, so you've seen it before when it comes together. So there were, their belief is that with his uh, thumb fixed with his ankle, you know, back, he will be an upgrade over Nori Aoki, which I know is hard for you to hear. Um, <laughs> but Nori Aoki was kind of terrible for four months last year. <laughs> so it's, it's reasonable to think Rios will be better. For, um, for all that we sort of uh, think of Dayton Moore mainly for trading prospects for a veteran, if you actually look at what he did with the farm system, that much lauded farm system of like 2009, 10, 11, that was really the only trade that he ever traded prospects. Almost everybody else ended up being brought up and incorporated into the team as, as, uh, as they could be. And then partly because they weren't in a great position at the deadline, but they didn't really make a deadline trade that um a prospects for veterans deadline trade really do you think that they that Dayton Moore is likely to make um a trade this year at the deadline in which he uh, cashes out some of his prospects for um you know a veteran piece or is it really much more than we realize uh crucial to his plan to bring those prospects into his team um and uh, incorporate them in the major league level yeah, I think they've kind of uh, they've earned some leeway and uh, that they can think more uh, proactively about the future and not so much about the immediate present in some of those cases. And they don't have a ton of blue chip prospects. I mean, they're, like they really don't. And you know, I, I know like uh, you, you guys read the the chapter I wrote, so you know how I feel about you know like like guys who are ranked you know 95th on the prospect list. I mean, that's nice, but I don't. That's not anything real. You know, like that's not anything you can count on. So um, they don't have a, a ton of blue chip guys. They have guys they like, like Kyle Zimmer and, and Brandon Finnegan and Sean Manaya and Miguel Almonte and Raul Mondesi and et cetera, et cetera. But none of those guys are really ready to contribute at the big league level. So they're kind of caught in a weird spot where um, they, they, they need to hold on to some of these guys uh, to, you know, to bolster their rotation down the road. Um, but you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of rambling. I lost the plot there for a second. Uh, help me out. Well, yeah. Well, where is this, know. where is this team on the, like on the artificial spectrum of win now and win later, you know, building for right. now and building for the future. Where, where are the Royals on that right now? I think they are, they are on the win now spectrum. I mean, uh, you know, they're on the win now side of it. Um, but they also, if they keep doing what they're doing, they can see how these guys develop and see, you know, who is actually big league ready next year and who's able to, you know, if Kyle Zimmer is able to contribute, that sort of thing, um, and then start to see how they can reshape their team. But right now they don't have, like, an overflow of prospects who can make an impact at the big league level. 
Um, you know, so there, there's a concern about, you know, the level of talent in their organization. You know, like uh, Alex Gordon can be a free agent after this year, and there's no real solution to replace him in left field. You know, so it's not they're not overflowing with answers at all these positions. So they kind of have to be uh, they kind of have to hold on to the guys they have. I feel like in a lot of ways. Do you think Giordano Ventura has another gear? I mean, his gear last year was was fine. It was very good. He but he throws so hard and just looks so unhittable at times that you look at his numbers and he didn't really strike out a whole lot of guys and and it's kind of underwhelming just because his appearance is so overwhelming so will will the stats match the appearance at some point or is this who he is which is fine but is there better uh there's yeah i'm sure there's better in there but if this is who he is i mean that's really good that's a Mm -hmm. pretty solid you know number three type starter with number one stuff Mm -hmm. um and 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 he and you know so yeah his, his strikeouts can jump um he's got to get a better handle on his breaking ball that's how he tends to get most of his strikeouts actually is is the curveball and the changeup um because his fastball is, is somewhat uh straight even though it does jump late um so if he can get a better handle on his off speed stuff you know yeah those those peripherals will start to uh will start to pick up I, i'm curious to see i mean he was a guy who relied a lot on his fastball and his fastball generating, um, you know, softer contact, you know, missing barrels essentially. So I'm curious to see now that he's been through the league for a full season, if his approach is the same, how teams react to him, and if he becomes a little more prone to the home runs and things like that, which he was not prone to last year, I believe. Um, so I'm curious to see how the league adjusts to him. And, and, you know, he's still really young. He's really, really young. I think he's 23. Um, so, you know, it's understandable that the breaking ball is a work in progress. But once you get that together, if you can stay healthy, it's pretty impressive. What do you think a reasonable expectation for those guys at the back of the bullpen is? Like if last year was a 10, <laughs> what should fans expect? You know, will Holland, Davis, and Herrera be like a nickname-worthy trio two years in <laughs> a row? Or given what we know about bullpens and how they fluctuate, is it, you know, was that yeah. kind of a one-year thing, do you think? I think, I mean, I think to be as to be as good as they were last year, you know, it's going to be pretty tough. I mean, Wade Davis, it's hard to see him having a one again, one ERA, but you know, he's really, really, really good. Um, so it's, it's reasonable to, you know, to imagine he'll be really good. Uh, Greg Holland has been pretty much the best reliever in the American league over the last four seasons. So, um, there are some injury concerns there. You know, he missed a decent chunk of time in September, uh, with a triceps thing. And, um, uh, so, you know, there, there's some concerns there with his, 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 not his physique, but his body type, you know, the smaller sort of guy. Um, and with Herrera, you know, he was really homer prone in 2013 and really struggled. And last year he had great ERA numbers and his peripherals totally dropped. So there's plenty of room. I, I still see them as like a, you know, a seven or an eight. Mm-hmm. And lastly, for me, um, there's I think there's still sort of the perception that the Royals are like this old school organization and they do have all of these new school stat people in their front office Mm -hmm. um do you have any sense of where they rank on that spectrum of like statistical Mm -hmm. statistical use is it that they have a bunch of smart people but at the top it's still sort of old school people or is it really well integrated uh, it's it's pretty well integrated, but their key decision makers tend to be uh, more um, scouting based. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you know, Dayton Moore grew up as a scout in the Braves organization. You know, JJ Piccolo came on a similar path. Scott Sharp, you know, all those guys. Um, so, uh, you know, Jin Wong is is was promoted to AGM, and he's a little more um, you know grounded in the Saber stuff. But he's also you know a guy who played in college and you know came up in the you know same sort of system. So. Um, it's integrated. They're not, you know, they're not the Phillies. Um, as I say every time when I ask about this, you know, they have like an analytics department and they're involved in conversations with like Rusty Coons putting together the outfield and, and, you know, the outfield configuration and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not in the, you know, I don't think at least they're in the top five of most Saber, you know, heavy orgs, but they're like most teams. I mean, it's, it's integrated, but you know, the, the key decision makers are, are from the more traditional background. Right. Um, how many? Uh, how many wins? Uh, eighty-four. All right. Good. What do you cool. guys think? Oh, uh, you're not allowed to ask that. Yeah. Right. Uh, we can't set a precedent. If we answer that, then everyone will ask us what uh, they okay, think about look, their ben, team. Ben, 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 Ben. I have a solution to this. Okay. 
you tell me you you tell Andy what you think my prediction is, and then I'll tell Andy what I think your prediction is. <laughs> oh, this is like Laden thinks. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, Sam thinks that the Royals will win eighty-three games. Hmm. Uh. Uh, okay, you don't know me at all. <laughs> ben thinks Ben thinks the Royals will win eighty two games. Oh, get out of my head. <laughs> all right, uh, all right. Sahadev's going to talk to Sam Mellinger now. Uh, thanks very much, Andy. We always love to have you. You're welcome on the Padres preview as well. <laughs> I'll, I'll be there. Go follow him on Twitter because he's fun on Twitter. Everyone at McCullough Star, and now our All Casey Star podcast continues. Welcome to the second half of the Effectively Wild podcast. I'm Sahadev Sharma, Associate Editor for Baseball Prospectus. With me is Sam Mellinger, columnist for the Kansas City Star. And we're going to break down and preview the 2015 Kansas City Royals, the defending AL champion Royals, which is uh, a little surprising to hear, but but that's reality. And uh, I'll kick it right off with, I think, the most obvious question. Uh how are the Royals going to replace James Shields? The way I look at it, it's it's one of those situations where nobody can really take a step back from the years that they have. It, the guys that they are keeping and the guys that they brought in, like Volquez uh, and and guys like Ventura and Duffy, really have to uh, likely get better. Is is that how the Royals plan to move on from James Shields? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's uh, that's a pretty good look at it um you know i mean yeah they don't have edison Valquez was not signed to you know duplicate 227 innings of a 3.2 era or whatever it was from that, that james shields had but um you know Yordano ventura this should be like sort of you know his first year as being the the best pitcher on a big league staff and i'm not totally sure whether he'll start opening day or not, whether that'll be, you know, made sort of unofficially official with that, you know, the opening day starter thing, but um, he's the best they've got. And, um, you know, in some ways, I guess Ventura would be the replacement for Shield. And then, you know, Duffy would be the replacement for Ventura and then so on. And everybody would just kind of slide in and then Volquez would, would provide some depth. And then, um, you know, they, they don't have a lot of room for growth with the rotation. You know what I mean? The room for growth that there is some uh, would be with the offense. Uh, as far as Brandon Finnegan, is he? Are they planning on using him in the rotation, or is that uh, kind of undecided? That we'll figure th- those things out in the in, in spring training, or is he just another nasty arm that's going to come out of the bullpen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they were uh, surprised a little bit by how effective and, and how quickly he was able to help them last year, but um, they, they still see him long term as a starter. You know, this is not like. Uh, you know, Aaron Crow, uh, you know, Brandon Finnick is a lot more talented than Aaron Crow. Uh, you know, they drafted Crow and wanted him to be a starter, but I think quickly after seeing him up close a little bit kind of changed their, their plans for him. So, you know, with Finnegan, they still want him to be a starter long-term. Obviously, starters are, are a lot more valuable, um, you know, than relievers. So I, he, he's going to have a chance, you know, he'll be in that group that they say is competing for a rotation spot. But, um, you know, every indication that I have is that, you know, it'll be a big league camp and then, uh, you know, start the season either double A or triple A uh, with the idea of, you know, if he's got some rotation depth in him and let's develop him to be a starter long term. And as far as the bullpen goes, is that, that they have those three nasty arms. We saw how impressive they were yeah. in, the, in the in the postseason. And obviously during the that that was uh, that happened for 162 games. Uh, is there any chance that one of those guys get moved? I, I guess Greg Holland would be the most obvious is is that even has that even been discussed as far as you know the front office thinking about moving one of those guys and trying to maximize value? Yeah, it's it's something that they talked about. I know they talked about it. Um, I've talked about it with them a lot, and and I, I thought it's something that they they should have done. Um, to be honest with you, just uh, they would have been dealing from a position of strength, and uh, you know I think that. Uh, if anything, maybe those guys are overvalued now a little bit. There, there's some 
um, you know, holy crap factor on, on what they were able to do in the postseason. I think you can you can kind of sell high on those guys, but I, I do understand the desire to not want to just trade a guy just to trade a guy. And um, you know, it, it's hard to say that you know a team needs to trade somebody without knowing you know sort of what what the market is like. And then realistically, they could have had you know it, it's easy to look at the Dodgers for instance and see a potential fit with you know, some outfielders that, that they had and ended up trading. But, um, you know, I, I just – you don't want to trade those guys just to trade them. But um, they, they've got a lot more high-end relief pitchers than, you know, is typically needed in a big league season. So, yeah, I mean, I, I thought Greg Holland is getting really expensive and, and Wade Davis, who, uh, you know, was as good as any relief pitcher has been really in the last five or ten years in Major League Baseball, uh, you know, would have been able to, to bring back – you know, a decent haul in the trade, uh, you know, a starting pitcher or a relief pitcher or uh, outfielder that, you know, you can put in your lineup. But, um, you know, not, nothing came up, and the Royals were in no hurry to, to trade any of those guys. Uh, I think they would have had to been overwhelmed probably to, to move anybody. I'm assuming that's uh, the same uh, thought process with Alex Gordon as well, who's coming up on his last season. I mean, he's kind of been the face of the, this turnaround in a way, uh, arguably the best player on the team. Uh, you know, it started off slow as a huge prospect and then really became a, 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 a superstar almost. I mean, I guess a superstar in the stat-loving community especially. Uh, but is he yeah. – is, is there are there talks of an extension or is this just we're, we're going to go into this season and, and he's he's going to uh, go into his walk here and if, if he leaves, he leaves uh, come October or November? Yeah, it's a really kind of strange, hard-to-read – situation with Alex because um, you know emotionally uh, and sort of you know sentimentally he is such a huge part of the Royals and and sort of you know what you can use with lazy shorthand to call the new Royals you know I mean he represents so much of what they've been through um, he was actually drafted before Dayton Moore came on which seems like such a long time ago mm-hmm. um, but you know started out as a, a third baseman and, and really failed as you know pretty big bust and now desperation they moved to left field and he turns into one of the better players in baseball and um, you know he signed that you know it was a four-year extension and um, you know at the time when, when they announced that at the press conference uh, you know he kind of said I, I told my agent specifically um, we will sign a deal uh, you know get whatever the best deal is that you can but I'm going to sign before uh, before the season starts because this is where I want to where I want to be and um, you know, that, that deal includes a, is it a $12.5 million, I think, extension for, for 2016. And, um, uh, I'm sorry, I said extension, uh, player option, uh, for 2016. Okay. And, and what was really interesting is last year, Andy McCullough, um, who's a really good beat writer, um, on the Royals for the start. Alex told him that he was going to exercise that option no matter what. And which seems insane, you know, um, that, that seems crazy. And, and he's got Casey Close as his agent. And, um, you know, it's, it's always important to, to remember that the, you know, the agent works for the player, not the other way around. But I just can't imagine that Alex will exercise that option without a, a huge argument um, from his agent. And, you know, the, I think the Royals and others around baseball are skeptical that, Alex will really do that, but I, I do think that it's it's worth mentioning just because there is a a mutual attraction there. You know, like Alex really likes the Royals. They, he he bought a house in Kansas City almost right away, and you know they live there in the off season. One of the few players that that does that. Um, you know, he has loves the Royals for for sticking with him. The Royals love him for becoming the player that that he is. So. Um, I, I do think there's a possibility, a strong possibility that they that they keep him long term. I just don't know that it's going to be, um, you know, during spring training that they have another contract extension. And Casey Close is known to keep things kind of uh, quiet when it comes to extensions or anything like yeah. that. He, he did a great job with that with Clayton Kershaw, and and I'm sure he he doesn't he doesn't love the he's he's been known to not really love. Uh, negotiating through the media or even anything really getting leaked until they're, you know, have really hammered things out. So I'm sure it's going to be, uh, like you said, it was kind of quiet other than Gordon, Gordon saying that he would uh, pick that, uh, 
pick that option up, which, like you said, that that's insane. Twelve and a half million is nothing for a guy of his level right now on the open market. He could he could get close to doubling that. Yeah, he'd be leaving money on the table. Well, first of all, he, he he'd have to leave money on the table to stay with Kansas City. Uh, you know, yeah. even with a twenty percent you know payroll bump from last year, they're still not going to outbid a lot of teams. But, you know, he'd not only be leaving money on the table based on, you know, his 2016 salary, but, you know, that's a year in your early 30s um, that, that you can use to leverage a longer-term deal. So, uh, I mean, you know, that would be just a, a – and, and, look, if, if that's his choice, that's what he wants to do, then, then go for him. You know, we don't have to worry about where Alex Gordon's next meal is coming from. But, uh, you know, just to, as far as negotiation, uh, it, would just, it, it would make no sense. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you mentioned it. You touched base. Uh, you touched on this earlier when we were talking about the rotation. But you said there's uh, probably where the most room for improvement is is on the is on the offense as far as that. There's plenty of uh, ceiling there. Guys like Hosmer and Mustakas, even Sal Perez, probably the only person the as far as the young guys go, the only person who you don't expect to significantly improve and maybe even take a slight step back is Lorenzo Cain because he had yeah. he, he quietly had a he's a really really great season last year but those three young guys that I mentioned there's a there's a lot of upside there and, and I'm assuming there's quite a bit of optimism uh, after the postseason that uh, that they had yeah I think within the organization um, they are really optimistic especially about those two guys on the corners Mustakas uh, and Hosburn. And they've been optimistic about those guys since the very beginning. But, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I, I heard the, the, the comment from somebody in, in the organization the other day we were having a conversation. He thought that one of the things that unlocked with Moustakis was um, he, he had struggled, you know, since he's been in the big leagues, really. And, and the point was that, that Moose was struggling because he felt a lot of pressure individually to produce. And some of that may or may not have been seeing Eric Hosmer, you know, come up first and, you know, have more success than he did. And, and that put a little bit of pressure on Moustakis and he, you know, maybe overcompensated, tried too hard, you know, that line. And that once October came, that he was really able to kind of step back and, and play for the team and not his own numbers a little bit. And, and the example that this guy used was, um, I think it was against Anaheim, uh, he had a really big home run. Uh, I think it was even an extra inning. And then uh, his very next at bat uh, laid down a bunt against the shift. And, uh, you know, that was something that, you know, the coaches and some of the other people in the organization been pushing him to do for a long time is bunt, bunt against that shift. Uh, you know, you might loosen, loosen some, some things up. You'll get on base. You know, you'll help the team and all those things. So, you know, the guy was just using that as a, as a point of, you know, maybe he's playing a little bit more for the team and that loosened him up and allowed him to produce a little bit more. Uh, I don't know how that translates to 162 games. You know, it, it's really easy to, you know, play the small sample size and, and look at something that happened in October and think that this is, you know, the new reality and this is how it's going to be going forward. I'm less optimistic um, that that's the case with Moustakis as I am with Hosmer. I, you know, I, I see... Hosmer swing and, and, you know, that, that triple off the wall against Oakland is just, you know, kind of the classic of what you expect him to be able to do. And, you know, they don't need him to be, you know, Mike Trout or whatever, but if, if he can be, you know, 120 OPS plus kind of guy, um, you know, a, a borderline all-star kind of player, I think that's, that, that's the kind of production that they really need out of him. And I think that, you know, him taking a significant step forward, um, you know, I'm not saying Moustakas can't do it, um, but I think there's a better reality, a better chance, I should say, that uh, that Hosmer would. You mentioned bunting in there, and I have to ask, you know, Ned Yost, uh, he takes a lot of criticism. I, I, I have to say, honestly, I only watched maybe uh, – seven to ten Royals games during the during their regular season so I personally couldn't say how he how good of a manager he was or was not during the regular season but the guy the team I watched in the playoffs was a well-managed team maybe maybe he just had a simple you know simple way to just time to go to the bullpen he knew when to go it it was a you know it, it was an easy enough uh, job 
but I didn't see any awful bunts. I didn't see any real head scratchers when I saw plenty of other managers making questionable decisions. Uh, is he unfairly criticized, uh, or did he actually change his style during the playoffs? He did change. Um, yeah, particularly with uh, how he used the bullpen. And, uh, you know, if we can sort of take the putting in Jordano Ventura two days after he had a start, you know, into the middle of an inning where he gave up the Brandon Moss home run, that was just an awful decision. But if we can take that out, um, he was pretty good. I, I agree with you. I think he was pretty good in, in the postseason. And um, he did change with about two weeks left in the regular season. Uh, he put in Aaron Crow in the sixth inning uh, against the Red Sox. And the, his base is loaded. And I think that was the Daniel Nava game. And, and Daniel Nava hit a, a grand slam. Uh, Boston won the game. And uh, Ned was uh, justifiably torched after that. And um, he was torched not just for the decision, but for the explanation of the decision. And, and you know, the, the money line of it was, uh, you know, I put Crow in because uh, the sixth inning is his inning. And, you know, kind of no matter what. And Kelvin Herrera, he said, he said something like, yeah, it's frustrating. It's frustrating to only be an hour or two away from getting the ball to Kelvin Herrera in the seventh inning. And, Absolutely. you know, it's like there's no rule against using Kelvin Herrera <laughs> in a high leverage, you know, situation in the six. And, and after that, one of uh, one of Ned's assistants, um, you know, they, they tried to make the point to him that, you know, you're going to have to be flexible. Um, you know, if we want to make the playoffs, these are the kinds of things that we're asking, we're going to have to do in the playoffs. So let's get used to them now. And, and I think that was a, a major turning point for Ned. And he did open up a little bit after that. And, you know, the Ventura thing, notwithstanding, um, you know, the, the bunt thing, I think, is overblown. Uh, if you look at the, the number of sack bunts uh, from the Royals as opposed to other teams in the American League, they're not, you know, it, it's just they don't bunt that much more than, than other teams. They're, they're in the middle of the pack somewhere. And, and even on top of that, uh, the Royals are a team that you might think would bunt more than other teams just because they, they don't have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they need to – uh, to produce some things sometimes. And, and there's also some moments where, you know, um, uh, Alcides Escobar in particular is kind of bunting on his own. So, you know, what, whatever the total number of sack bunts that the Royals had last year, you know, it's a fraction of that, a uh, big fraction, small fraction, or whatever, but it's not, not all of those are called from the dugout. So I think some of it's overblown. I mean, I, I think that Ned, I, I think Ned overall is pretty average as a manager. I think that um, he's bad uh, strategically. I, I do think that that's a weakness. Um, but I also think that uh, he's, he's good in the clubhouse. I think that, um, you know, the players believe in him. Um, you know, sort of his move is to give his players, uh, you know, unwavering support and belief and to defend them even when there's no attacks, you know. And uh, he has their ear and he has their respect. And, um, you know, I always think that the, the most important thing is just do players play hard for a guy. And, and are they engaged? And I think that has always been the case with Ned. And whether he has an easy group to manage, um, which I think in some ways it is, um, or if that's a credit to him, I mean, either way, they're, they're playing hard, and I think that's the manager's number one number one job. All right, Sam, before I let you go, uh, I'm asking everybody before, uh, the last question is going to be, what, what storyline event, as a columnist, what are you most looking for? forward to covering and writing about when it comes to the Royals this season? What events or storyline? Yeah, just something. Uh, anything, I mean, it could be anything, but what's really, what What do you think is going to be something that, you know, really uh, piques your interest? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm going to go too general um, with my answer to your question here, but um, this is something, you know, as you can imagine, um, that people have been dreaming about for a generation, mm -hmm. you know? And, and last season, I think, like, really, uh, if we can be honest, like, snuck up, uh, you know, not just on baseball people, but people in Kansas City, you know, in July. Uh, and not, not in the beginning of time. I mean, after the All-Star break, this was a team that was below 500. And, you know, there were serious questions about, you know, Ned Yo's job and, uh, you know, by extension, Dayton Moore's job and, you know, the future of the Royals. And this is eight years in the making. And what do we have to show for it? And, uh, you know, October kind of came out of nowhere. Um, you know, you're down 7-3 going into the eighth inning against John Lester. 
in the wild card game, and then you know you kind of think that's going to be it, and then they win that and, and don't lose a game until the World Series, and you know you go on and on, and, and so. This year, there's been, you know, the offseason has been a few months of, of people being able to sort of step back on. Did that happen? Like, did we really, you know, like the World Series was in Kansas City. Like, they played real World Series games in Kansas City. And it's been a chance for people, especially with the Chiefs not doing much, to, to get really excited about baseball here in, in a way that, that really hasn't been the case. Uh, you know, no exaggeration has not been the case since probably the 80s, and, and if not the 80s, the early 90s before the strike. And that, to me, is, I think it's changed baseball. Like, I, you know, people like me, um, sports writers and sports media, I think we get too hyperbolic sometimes, but I don't think this is an exaggeration at all that, you know, baseball has changed in a major way in Kansas City in October. And in the summer of 2015, I think, is, is the first time that people are really going to be able to, to let that breathe a little bit, you know, assuming they don't get off to a one and 18 start or something. But um, I, I'm really excited to see, you know, a full year of uh, a town that has always loved baseball, but needed a reason, uh, you know, needed some comfort in being able to show that love, you know, that that love has not always been, re- you know, reciprocated. Um, you know, the Royals fans have been a lot better to the Royals than the Royals have been to their fans over the years. And, and that changed in a huge way uh, in October. And it, it was so much fun to, uh, you know, I don't know about being in the middle of, but, you know, seeing up close like that. It was it really was the most fun that I've had in this job. And, and I really like my job. Um, and I think that, that, that that's the big thing is to be able to see that, you know, over the course of the season of, of it really being embraced. And, you know, maybe there's 30,000 people uh, you know, on a Tuesday night instead of just on fireworks Friday, stuff like that. I mean, I, I think that that's going to be really exciting. It'll be a lot different than certainly than it's been in, in, in 20 some years. I, I totally see where you're coming from on that angle because uh, I've, I'm, I'm located in Chicago and I've been covering baseball only for since about 2010, 2011. And neither town, neither side of town has really uh, gotten the fan bases going too crazy yeah, late. Right. So, so I'm waiting for that, especially on the north side. They get a good team there. It's, it, it changes the way the fans and and, yep. the, and the way Wrigley Fields and I'm and from what I've heard, Kansas City is just an amazing baseball town. So I'm, I'm sure 2015 will be fun as far as just seeing the fans support the team and really and really uh, love you know really embrace what what happened in October because I know it was crazy there in October. So uh, yeah, it's got to be exciting. Yeah, it was. It was. It was just such a like. It, it, it was, this word is overused, but it really was kind of surreal, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't a lot of sellouts during the regular season. And, you know, there had always been this, what I came to refer to probably too many times, as this, like, well-earned skepticism, you know, that um, I always said that, you know, most fans expected a monster around every corner because for 20-some years there had been a monster around every corner. And after that wild card game, you know, it was just like everything let out and, you know, I remember, you know, James Shields had said, he told somebody in, within the uh, organization that when he went out to get the ball, um, you know, throw the first pitch against the A's in that wild card game, he could literally feel the, the ground shaking beneath him like there was a freaking earthquake. <laughs> and, you know, all, all through the playoffs, there were, uh, you know, I don't know if you've been to Coffin Stadium, but it sort of backs up against the highway. And, um, you know, there were people throughout every home game that the Royals played in the playoffs. People would stop on the highway and get out of their cars. And, you know, I don't know if they were just taking pictures or, you know, just wanted to see what that was like, you know, for the people that, that couldn't get a ticket. The tickets were ridiculously expensive on the secondary market. And it was just like this loop. These cops would come and, and you know, after about five minutes, sort of shoo everybody away, uh, clear the highway because that's a safety concern. And then... You know, five minutes later, there's more cars parked because, you know, people want to see. It was just, it, it really was like one of those, this doesn't happen all the time in sports where, where you have this once in a generation moment and, and you can kind of think about that and kind of feel that in the middle of it that, wow, this is something that, you know, I've been waiting for for 20 years. And that was just a really cool thing to see Kansas City be able to experience. 
Uh, Sam, thanks so much for your time. Why don't you uh, let the listeners know where they can uh, check your work out and also where they can find you on Twitter or whatever social media you may uh, may enjoy. Yes, uh, KansasCity.com is the, the website for the newspaper, and, and I'm uh, at Mellinger, M-E-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. Thanks again. That's Sam Mellinger from the Kansas City Star. Uh, I, you write about... Uh, all Kansas City sports, right? So they can read whatever they, whatever, whatever tickles your fancy, correct? Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. All, all Kansas City sports: Chiefs, Royals, colleges, uh, sometimes high schools, uh, whatever, whatever. I think people might want to read about. Great. All right. So check him out. Thanks for your time. Uh, you can follow me, Sahadev Sharma, on Twitter at Sahadev Sharma. Uh, Sam, pleasure. Take care. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Please join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Send us emails for next week's listener email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes and support our sponsor, the Baseball Reference Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We will be back with more team preview podcasts next week. Have a wonderful weekend. Hey, Sam. How are you? Pretty excited about A-Rod going after Bones. <laughs> I know. I know. Big news day for me. I was surprised that that wasn't uh, a bigger deal in the world. I guess I guess I'm the only one who's got a 30-to-1 bet riding on it. I, probably, yeah, because <laughs> no one else would give you such good odds. <laughs> Yeah. I'll let you buy out now for 75 cents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is no glory in a buyout. <laughs> well, the, the Yankees are going to explore that same possibility with A-Rod probably in a year. So, I mean, the dude only needs 109. <laughs> 109 is like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's if see. you can what find is... a way to bring that up in, in this podcast, I'll be very impressed. Oh, uh, well, now it'll be forced. <laughs> ah, damn it. 109. No player in history has hit 109 home runs from 39 on, including Barry Bonds. What's the What's the most number someone's hit from that age on? Bonds hit 104, and then Daryl Evans hit 96, and Carlton Fisk hit 95. So that sounds depressing because there's no one with 109. But Carlton Fisk, you know, not nearly the player. Yeah, Daryl Evans. That's a, well, this exactly. would be a good way to advertise the play index. <laughs> Probably would be. I'm just trying to help you guys. I'll do it. I'll do it. All okay. right. Here we, we gotta go. kill. We gotta sure. kill 20 minutes somehow. I've yeah. only got one question for you, so <laughs> I can't wait to hear what that is.